for we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melts the clouds of sin and sadness. Thank you for joining us for this program from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our program with others. Now, we take you to the service of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Well, good morning. It is so good to be here. And uh, I forget who it was. I think it was on Wednesday. Um, I had a kid asking about me standing behind the podium. And uh, again, to, to remind everybody that uh, it's bigger than me. So I, I, I don't like it. But um, we have a, we're so excited that you're here today. Uh, we do want to um, really push another, uh, the event that we've been talking about. There's some flyers in the, um, by the table by my office, I guess right out here behind us. Uh, it's for a Family First uh, Sunday. That's where we're honoring all of our new babies. And uh, we've been having a baby influx lately. Uh, I, I've lost track of how many we've had. Um, but we are so excited. There's um, very few things that are greater than a uh, crying baby in service. So he wants you to know that you are more than welcome to stay. Don't be worried about anything. We are so happy to hear those voices because that means it's a growing church. And uh, we just want to honor our families. We want to honor those babies. And uh, so that's April 16th. We'll have a fellowship meal. So we'll have some food, some fellowship. And we'll be passing out some um, some cool Bibles. And uh, we'll even um, try to do it like last year. We have a nice little video presentation. Uh, just, again, celebrating the wonderful families that we have. We also um, want to um, push one more event coming up in May. Um, this is a relatively new event for Maywood. Um, on May uh, 19th and 20th, um, uh, there we go, there's um, a children's camp that's happening. Um, I have, um, I am now directing that week of camp. Uh, it's not a week, a weekend. So it's a Friday, Saturday. That's for ages four to nine. So with the, I guess, the purpose of allowing your child to know what Maywood is, be comfortable with Maywood, uh, our ages four through six, um, parents, at least one, is required to stay with their child. Uh, and then seven, eight, and nine-year-olds can, of course, come and stay by themselves. But that's going to be a Friday and Saturday, May 19th and 20th. If you want more details, just come ask me, and I can give you some information about that. But we're excited about that. And again, like I said, that helps kids know uh, what Maywood is. And that way, when they get to go to summer camp for a whole week, they, one, won't be lost. They won't they might still cry for mommy and daddy, but they'll be more familiar with it and they'll know the kids around their ages and uh, then it gives a nice solid foundation for uh, future years at camp. Uh, but speaking of children, uh, kids make life just not boring. Uh, there's always something going on with kids, uh, whether you work with kids, whether you have kids, whether there's kids around you. Uh, life, I guess you, you can't say it's boring when there's kids around. And uh, my favorite right now, see, I, I'm weird. I like the toddler stage. Uh, I guess I'm just a, a weird one. Um, but I, I think it's really fascinating because every day there's something new. <laughs> every day there could be, I don't know, uh, they're learning something new. They're experiencing something new. They're discovering something new. But also there's new problems. There's new complaints. But it's, 
it's really fun because you've always heard, and I heard this when I was in some child psychology classes and child development classes, that these terrible twos. I don't know who de determined that twos were terrible, other than let's find a clever way to, to, to you know, use all these alliterations. But if we get our mind in the, I guess, which could be really scary, but put a, trying to get our minds in the, our minds in the mind of a two-year-old, we might understand what's the, what they're what they're experiencing. Uh, Kaysen, for example, he loves to scream and cry for certain things, especially when he doesn't get his way. This morning we made we had cereal for him, but thanks to Pat, he wanted pancakes because Pat loves to give him pancakes. So he was, I want pancakes, I want pancakes, and he can. And for us, we think we see a two-year-old who's not getting his way, who's griping, complaining, and screaming for pancakes. But all Kaysen understands is, I had pancakes the other day. Why can't I have pancakes today? And uh, he doesn't understand why pancakes on one day is okay, but I have to have cereal another day. Because in his mind, pancakes should be every day. And uh, let's think, you know, a little child who throws a ball. Well, the other day, you said I could throw the ball to you. But now, we were outside. But now we're inside. He wants to throw a ball. We say, don't throw a ball. So he's confused because one day we can throw a ball, the next day we can't throw a ball. So to him, this trial he's experiencing is the worst thing in the entire planet. The worst thing that could ever happen, I can't throw a ball. Worst thing in the world, I can't have my pancakes. For us, we see his complaint, we see his trial, and we say, man, it must be rough to be a two-year-old. must be so rough to have all your problems with not throwing a ball and not having pancakes. We know as adults, we have such bigger problems. We have such bigger trials. And we'll come back to that, but trials, while we're experiencing them, no matter what our age are, are not fun. For the two-year-old, the trial he's going through isn't fun. The trial we go through as adults, maybe it's a loss of a friend, maybe it's a loss of a job, maybe it's the stresses of job, maybe it's the stresses of relationships, maybe it's persecution, whatever that trial might be, it's not fun. So here we are, we're going to be looking in Nehemiah. In Bible Bowl this year, we've been studying Ezra and Nehemiah. And when I heard of that, I was not excited. I'll be an honest minister and say I was not excited about doing those two books. I was like, why can't we do something else? Some other books that might be, you know, in my opinion, might be more applicable. And as we dig down deep into Ezra and Nehemiah, there's all kinds of awesome applications that we can learn from Ezra and Nehemiah. So just to recap very quickly, Ezra and Nehemiah, some say it was one book, it's one big story, some say it's it's written different, you know, to two different books. You know, we just that's why we have two books. But it is one big story that we're looking at here, and it really takes place at the beginning of the return of the exiles. So you have the return of the remnant of all the Jewish people. Jerusalem was overtaken, was, was captured and, and overthrown, destroyed by Babylon. And there's a small group of Jewish people who are able to return to Jerusalem. So at the beginning of Ezra, they're returning to Jerusalem and with the hopes of also now rebuilding the temple. And uh, there's all kinds of persecution that happens. Uh, there's a group that doesn't want them to, re to rebuild. They have to, they have to pause rebuilding. And then they have to go and tell the king, hey, your last king told him he could do this. You should probably go check your records, get your stuff straight. And then they can resume building the temple. That all is through Ezra. And then we get to the book of Nehemiah. And there's a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins about 100 years 
since the first exiles returned in 15 years after the book of Ezra ends. So you would say it's been 100 years since they've returned. Surely they've made some progress rebuilding Jerusalem. Because by the end of Ezra, the temple has already been rebuilt. So at least in 15 years, surely they've made some progress. Well, you and I know with construction and getting roads repaired, probably not. Um, but here we are 15 years later, and the beginning of Nehemiah begins like this. So Nehemiah chapter 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of um, Hekali, um, Hekali, um now it happened in the month of um, Cheslev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that um, Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And here's the message he got back. Verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So it's been a hundred years since they've returned. They've rebuilt the temple. That's all fine. That's all great. But that's about it. The city's still in shambles. The city's still destroyed. The gates and the, and the walls around the city are still destroyed. They're still on fire. Remember, there's also that persecution from the outside that didn't want the temple rebuilt. And now they're not wanting the walls to be rebuilt. Through the whole book of Nehemiah, we see that turmoil. In fact, there's, they're on the brink of war pretty much the entire time. But Nehemiah hears this and he realizes, uh-oh, but help if I turn this on. He noticed that the, you know, he hears the cities in ruins, and then he shows empathy. Because his response to hearing it, so he's a Jewish man, he he he's sometimes you can think he might be from the tribe of Judah here, especially when he says his brothers came from Judah. So we have here this, this struggle here, and now it would be so easy to get angry. It would be easy to say, to respond harshly or rashly. But instead, Nehemiah, in verse 4, this is what he did. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he stopped and he showed empathy for those in Jerusalem. He was moved because he knew they were suffering. He was moved because of the turmoil, the trials they were experiencing. Again, they're on the brink of war here. There's all this tension around. But he's also mourning because it's been a hundred years and nothing's been completed. Now, he's, you know, yes, he's still in Babylon. He's in the king's court. At this time, he's the, the cupbearer to the king, which we'll explain in a little bit. But he's moved by this situation. And he mourns, he's crying, and that really is part of this whole first chapter. And we'll cover that specific prayer in just a few moments. But then we get to chapter 2, when he's finally, he goes before the king. And at this time, uh, especially during this culture, you couldn't be sad in front of the king. Uh, it was considered not only unacceptable, but you could be put to death if you were sad in the presence of the king. Because, after all, you're in the presence of the king. You should be happy. You should be joyful. And if you're sad, you might make the king upset, or you might make the king think it's him, or whatever. So, a lot of times, if people were sad in the presence of the king, they just put you to death. 
Well, again, remember, Nehemiah is moved with this empathy. He's crying and mourning for days. He's fasting. He's really struggling. And, of course, that's really hard to hide when you're experiencing that kind of emotion. Chapter 2, he is sad in the presence of the king. And the king notices this and asks him, why are you sad? It's evident you're not sick. Now, there's two things to mention here. One, he's sad is all over his face. But two, he's fasting and mourning, remember, but he's obviously doing that very privately. Because some, when they would fast, would make it obvious. They would be unkept. They would look sickly. So they, people would know they're fasting. The king just says, you're not sick. You look sad. Why are you sad? Nehemiah explains the situation. And then he asks to be able to go and help his people. And the king allows him to do so. But we see him responding in faith in God. Because when the king asks, why are you upset? upset? He tells him, and the king says, what are you asking? What is your request? Again, how easy would it be to say, I want you to go stop all those people who are stopping any progress, and I want you to, let's go to war. Let's destroy the enemy. How easy would it have been to ask for something foolishly? Um, there's been times when I've had opportunities to, to ask for something and then or to do something only to moments, maybe just minutes, maybe days later, to only regret that I didn't ask for something else. Have you all been in that situation before? I'm, I'm sure you have. Nehemiah, upon the king saying, okay, so what do you want? What are you asking me to do? His first response is to pray. Verse 4, the king said to me, verse 4 of chapter 2, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. First thing he did. He didn't say, okay, here's what I want and here's what I'm asking you. He paused and prayed. Then he asked, can I go and help? And then the rest of the book happens. In fact, he never asked the king for stuff, but the king have sent with him an armed escort and all kinds of stuff to be able to get progress done. But here we have the story and response of how Nehemiah responded to trials. So this morning I want us to, to learn together on what Nehemiah did that was so unique. The first thing is he does not hide his emotions. And I know that's really weird. And, and, as, and as, a, as a man, we're taught we got to hide our emotions. So it's hard for me and others to look at that and say, well, he, he openly cried, he wept, he mourned. That, that's really different. But what it really boils down to is he weeps for the state of his people. He knew those who he was aligned with, the Jewish people, were suffering. And he mourned with those who were mourning. Sounds familiar. Jesus tells us, you know, we should mourn with those who mourn. And the Bible teaches having compassion. In fact, in Psalm 34, David says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their, all their troubles. They're mourning. Nehemiah is now mourning with them. And his prayer is he's praying for deliverance. He's praying for God to remember his people. In fact, uh, Romans 12, uh, it was Paul's words. I, 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 I made a mistake there. But Paul wrote in Romans 12 verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Nehemiah is living this out. He's not hiding his emotions. It's so easy for us when we see others who are suffering 
those we love, those we care about, we see injustices happening in our world, it's so easy to say, well, that's not my problem. Again, remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer at this time. He had a lot of influence. The cupbearer also had probably, I would hate that job, because uh, the cupbearer's responsibility was if any cup were to be given to the king when he was served any kind of food, he got to taste it first to make sure it wasn't poison. If it was poison, guess what? Cupbearer dies, you get a new cupbearer. I would hate that job because always you're on the brink of, I could be poisoned at any moment, but the cupbearer's you know, responsibility was, I'm protecting the king. So he had influence. The king obviously trusted the cupbearer because also, if the king gets poisoned through a cup, who likely poisoned the king? Well, the cupbearer, because if the cupbearer lives and the king dies, the only person who gave the king the cup was the cupbearer. So this is obviously someone the king very much trusted, trusts and very much respects. So when the king asks, what are you asking? He has pretty much a free-for-all what to ask. Oops, let's not go there just yet. Back one, please. I can't do it. If we can back up one for me, that'd be great. But as he is doing this, he's empathizing with his people. It would be so easy again for him to say, I'm in a, a high uh, place. Uh, I'm in a high uh, official. Uh, I, the king trusts me. I won't worry about it. They'll figure it out eventually. But instead, he weeps. He gives in to that empathy, which is good. He, he, he knows his people are suffering. And then he does this next thing, which he fasts. So here we are. Nehemiah now fasts. And fasting is such a, a weird concept because we don't talk about it a lot. Uh, at least in, in, uh, in our culture. And rather, our culture, we like to talk about eating. Uh, I love eating. Um, uh, I, I love all kinds of stuff. In fact, uh, what trip is good if you don't stop and eat? Um, I know we were at the zoo. We ate on the zoo. We go home. We're like, let's stop and get more food on the way home. Uh, I think we went. We were going to go to an ice cream place, but we couldn't. So we went to another place and got all kinds of snacks. Because, again, we love food. But here, Nehemiah is fasting. And the question remains, well, is fasting really ever a commandment? Because we're trying to learn from Nehemiah. We're trying to learn how to respond to trials. The first thing is to have empathy with those around us who are suffering. To be able to, sh to also show and be honest with others that you are suffering too. Nehemiah could have told the king, oh, I'm not sad. I'm just having a bad day. Don't worry about it. But he was like, I'm suffering. They're suffering. And I feel bad. I feel called to do something about it. So he's honest with those feelings, he's honest with his trials, and then he begins his fast. And the fast started even before he saw the king. But in the New Testament, we have a few places. One, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is talking about fasting. But instead of saying, you should fast, he always starts with, and when you fast. He didn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast, here's how you should fast. Then we have Matthew 19, there's some fasting there where it seems to be implied, again, that fasting is a regular practice. So whether or not we want to argue, is fasting commandment? Is it not a commandment? Fasting is something we do when we're giving everything and pouring everything into a time to get closer to God. Often fasting comes with prayer, and we'll talk about that again with, with Nehemiah's prayer. But fasting here should be private. 
right? And we all see that. That was one of the biggest things Jesus talked about with fasting. When he said, when you fast, don't show off, don't look sickly, do it in private. And here we see, again, Nehemiah fasting in private. And he's using it as a way to get closer to God. See, fasting helps us realize that we are sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're not, we're not sustained by food. Now, physically, yes, we're sustained by food. When I don't get hungry, we talked about this in our teen class, do we know people who get hangry when they don't eat? Um, I, might, I might or might not be one of those people. But when we get hungry, we get irritable. But here, Nehemiah is fasting. But you could also argue that when we fast, things that we need to work on rise to the surface. But for this purpose, Nehemiah's fasting and spending time in prayer to get ready for what he knows is coming. He knows, I have to do something. I don't know what that something is, but I also know that I need to ask God for some kind of deliverance. Because my people are suffering, and since I know they're suffering, I'm suffering. But I also know that I am in a difficult position with the king. So I need to fast and pray so I know how to respond to the king so that I can help my people, so I can help God's people. He's fasting, he's praying, he's centering around God so that he can put his entire trust in God. It would be so easy for Nehemiah to say, well, I don't need to fast, I don't need to pray. I'm important and the king trusts me so I can ask whatever I want and it's very likely I'll get it. He didn't do that. He didn't think it was all about him. He understood the gravity of the situation and knew that if anyone would be able to deliver the people, it would be God. And he would just be a vehicle through which that deliverance was given. So he's fasting and then he begins praying. See, he knew that the spiritual strength doesn't come from food, but from God. And he's spending now his time in prayer. So let's back up again to Nehemiah chapter 1. And when he's praying... This is his prayer, and it's so beautiful. And you can see the humility of Nehemiah. You can see also the pain and the empathy of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah says, I respect God, I'm going to honor him, but I'm also going to plead with him to hear the cries of his people. So Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 5, Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he starts off by saying, I, I'm praising you, I'm honoring you, but I also know that you always keep your promises. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So he says, please listen. He's not saying, I, de I ask, I demand you to do this for me. He's not saying that. He's, again, He's fasting, he's humbling himself, and he's saying, I respect you, I know you're all loving, and now I ask and plead with you to listen. He says, continuing on, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, and even I and my father's house have sinned. So he says, I understand we've messed up. Again, that's why Jerusalem fell, they left God. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you over to the Babylonians and the Persians, and they're all going to take over, and then you'll come back later. And now you have that remnant. And he's, So Nehemiah is saying, I recognize that we have now messed up. And I know that I am in the same boat. I'm no better, but I have messed up as well. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. 
So he says, I know that you're faithful to those who keep them, and I know we've not done that. But he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So he says, but remember, you said if we come back to you, you'll accept us with open arms. No matter how far out we are, no matter how scattered you, we are, no matter how bad it gets, if we come back to you, you've promised that you'll accept us back. Verse 10, they, speaking of those who were suffering in Jerusalem, the walls, 100 years, nothing's been rebuilt except for the temple. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So now he's saying, I want you to hear their pleas, hear their cries for help. But then he switches it from a they to a him. And he says, but I want you to give me success today. See, Nehemiah knew that he was about to go in the presence of the king. He knew, I'm about to be either what? He could kill me when he sees I'm upset, sees I'm sad, or he could give me the opportunity to make a request. And then he says, and grant him mercy, being me, grant me mercy. Mine says, in the sight of this man, it's referring, this man's referring to the king. He's saying, grant me mercy, grant me, I guess, at least have success with the king. See, the whole purpose of this fasting and this prayer was for him to plead with God, to humble himself, to get close with God, but then to say, I have to do something. And I know you're going to do something, but I want to get involved. So give me success, protect me. I'm going before the king. It's such a, a really a, a, a beautiful, beautiful illustration. And then again, remember, once the king noticed he was upset and he asked, what do you want? What do you want me to do? He prays again before he says, I want to go. And all the king said was, how long are you going to be gone for? Okay, sounds good. Here's stuff. Go. And that was really the beginning of the story of Nehemiah. But it's so important for us not to overlook this prayer. Because when we go through trials, it's so easy for us to skip that. Or it's so easy for us to pray and demand rather than praying and saying, I want wisdom, I want to know how to respond, and I need you to be with me. Nehemiah had so much wisdom already, and uh, especially enough to ask for wisdom again. But it reminds us to understand that God is always listening. Sometimes when we go through trials, it's so easy for us to think, well, God doesn't hear me. He doesn't really understand. This is too small, this is too great, or I can handle this myself. Yet how easy would it have been for a man in Nehemiah's position, who's literally always standing right next to the king, who's probably at least been in almost, if not every meeting that the king has, because he's always there to take a sip before the king does. He has influence. It's so easy for him to say, I'll just ask. Because I know I can at least convince the king to do something. That would have been pretty easy. I would be tempted to do that. 
a little rashly perhaps, but Nehemiah pauses. He allows his empathy to uh, be with the people. He fasts. He prepares himself. He prays. He continues to prepare himself. Psalm 18 tells us, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And Nehemiah said, I'm going to fully put my trust in God. I'm going to cry out. I know he hears me, and then I'm going to act, and I'm going to allow God to do his work. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4. Again, it would be so easy to be anxious about this. It would be so easy. We're talking uh, the last two weeks in our, in our high school class about being spiritual, spiritually paralyzed, where we know what we should do, but it's so easy to allow fear to stop us from acting. That also would have been really easy. Nehemiah knows I could be put to death if I just show sadness, regardless of my influence, so I just won't say anything. That would have been another temptation. Paul says in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We want to have peace, we give everything up to God. Nehemiah, obviously, in the midst of war at any moment, seemed to have peace. Now, yeah, he mourned, he cried, he fasted, he prayed. That seemed stressful, but he had a peace in all his actions because he knew God is going to keep his promises. God is with me. God is with his people. And even if this situation doesn't go the way I want it to, I know in the end, God is going to glorify us. See, in the end, after life is over, we are going to be glorified with him. We're going to live with him forever. And going back to the beginning with toddlers, not understanding, and their trials are so big. The way we look at toddlers' trials as being almost insignificant, silly. Sorry, can't have pancakes today. You had them yesterday. End of the world. Must be hard to be a four-year-old. Imagine how God views our trials. Not saying to diminish our trials, not saying they're insignificant, but he looked at them and says, I can fix that. I can, I can walk with you through this trial and help you understand that this trial is not the end. This trial does not mean life is over. This trial does not mean I've abandoned you or I don't care for you, just like we don't stop caring for our children when they're screaming for pancakes. God says, I'm right there with you. And you're asking for my comfort, and I will give you comfort. So the next time we face something challenging, do what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah, he empathized, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed. And then he allowed God to use him for God's glory. So this morning, if you're struggling with something, we've all struggled with something. Whether it's, again, a life storm whether it's a loss of someone, whether it's a spiritual illness, whatever you're struggling with, God is right there with you saying, just cry out to me, and I'm there with open arms. Maybe you haven't started your walk with Christ just yet. You haven't been buried in the waters of baptism, so you can have your sins washed away so you can rise and walk in newness of life. If you need to start your life with Jesus, don't, don't put that off. Whatever your need is, please come now.
while we stand and sing. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Thank you again for joining us, and please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or our podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast provider. Also, leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. You can also follow us on Facebook. Instagram. Mortals join the mighty chorus And Twitter morning stars began Be sure to join us again And until then, remember to love like Jesus man to man.